right. I won't go longer than three minutes, I promise. Um, that's not true. We're going to go for a little longer than that as we're going to study together a little bit this morning. Uh, biblical masculinity. Tom gave me a pretty broad uh, topic kind of subject idea this morning. And so I thought we'd turn in our Bibles. We'll read a passage or two. Then we'll have a bit of a, a bit of a talk about what biblical masculinity is. Why is it important? What does it look like when the rubber hits the road? What is it actually functionally doing? How is it different? How is it unique? And how God calls us to this wonderful privilege. So Tom gave just a, a couple of words of introduction. My name is Craig. I serve as a pastor at Journey Christian Church. So I thought I'd represent a little this morning, just wear my polo in case you forgot. You might forget my name, but the church I pastor in Rochester, New York, just upstate, right on Lake Ontario, called Journey Christian Church. Before that, I was pastoring in East Texas, right in the buckle of the Bible Belt. I was there for four years, pastoring in a conservative Southern Baptist church. And before that, from 2008 to 2017, I was the pastor of Hope Reformed Baptist Church. So a little surprising today to see so many new faces as God has continued to bless Hope Church and bring new people along. And I know this morning we've got a bunch of guests here that are kind of checking out the church. And that's a wonderful thing for me to bear witness to. But for those that were around for the long haul, like, like Vic or Ken Broomfield, remember the the early days, we might say the glory days have passed. We certainly believe and trust that the future is going to be a really brilliant and amazing. And God has got wonderful things in store for Hope Church. So a little bit serendipitous for me this morning to be with you guys and to preach to you guys and to minister to you because for so long I served as the pastor of Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Just a few minutes ago, someone came up and met Tom and he was introduced as I'm the pastor of Hope Reformed Baptist Church. I was like, wait, hold, whoa, hold up. I'm the pastor of Hope. No, that's, that's ancient history now. And uh, God has blessed Tom with the requisite gifting, the appropriate calling, and God is using him in a powerful way. And I'm extremely excited for how God is using Pastor Tom, the elders here at Hope Church, and of course, all of you as you bring your gifts to serve Christ in this local assembly of faith. All right, with that, without any further ado, I don't know if you are, uh, yeah, that's very boomy, isn't it? Don't lean down. I don't know if you have Bibles on you, but I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 to 14. I'm going to read this because it's a little controversial. In fact, there are some Bible translations that have done an injustice to this passage. I'll explain a little more about that in a moment. But it's very explicit and clear about what it means to live a life of biblical masculinity, to not be ashamed of God having designed us and made us as men, not, not only not being ashamed, but being willing to celebrate that, being willing to be, in the most positive sense, proud of that, being willing to, to understand that God has a distinct purpose for that. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, chapter 16, verses 13 to 14. He said, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, verses 14, let all that you do be done in love. Men, all Christian men are called by the scripture to lead with conviction, with, 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 with a sense of purpose. God has, God has given us this gift of masculinity. Men are called to lead with confidence. 
That means to say that as men, we don't go out of our way to, to mute our masculinity. We, we don't buy into the, the cultural edicts of toxic masculinity. And so you've got to mute yourself. You've got to get beige. You've got to dull it down and dumb it down because it's offensive to others. The Bible calls us to lead with conviction, with confidence, with comfort, and with consistency. Let me explain that. That one may not have sounded like it fit with comfort. But as we understand the Latin roots of the word comfort, we understand that the, the word con or com is usually Latin for with, like, like chili con con, right? Chili with beef. That's, that's kind of the, the, the Latin way of understanding the word con. And fort, like forte, or like a, like a military fort, speaks to robustness. It speaks to indomitability. It speaks to invincibility. And so when we think about biblical masculinity, we're called to lead with comfort, which means with the strength, with the robustness and the indomitability that God calls us to lead with. Again, no shame, no embarrassment, not trying to backpedal or over-apologize or present any kind of femininity in the way that we live out and express our masculinity, but rather in honor of what God wrote in Scripture, men to be dependable, to be where they're supposed to be, before they're supposed to be there, for longer than they're supposed to be there, to be dependable. Dependable means that you can put a weight on it and the weight will be borne with strength. Not weak men, thin-skinned men, weak-spined men, impotent men. These are the scourge of society and culture. Scripture calls men to lead with dependability, to be alert and aware. That's what our passage talks about. Firm in the faith, with alertness and with awareness. To, to be a man, part of that means to actually be observant in your environment, to understand the nature of threats, to understand a, a, a social context and a, and a construct, to, to be aware of, of forthcoming threats. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said that savage wolves are coming in and they won't spare the flock. And then Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he said, even from among your own selves will rise up men who will speak twisted things to draw people away after them. The threat is always external. The threat is always internal. And the calling upon biblical men is to understand that threat, to be able to anticipate it and to be alert and aware to be unmovable in your faith. Paul said to the Corinthians, firm in the faith. This kind of a, an idiom was one of Paul's favorites. He talks about steadfastness. He talks about perseverance. He talks about, he talks about being able to bear down under a load and not be moved. Firm in the faith. Biblical masculinity looks like a consistent expression of piety, and devotion to God that doesn't waver, that, that doesn't ebb and flow, rise and fall with seasons and, and contexts and challenges that come. This is, this is what the biblical man looks like. His faith is always a strong undergirding of his character and his calling. And he doesn't wait for good times to come to express that or stand firm in that. He is firm at all times, regardless of what challenges might arise. We see this, it says, unmovable in your faith. And verse 14 says that all that we do should be fueled by love. Now, one of the ways, curiously, that this 
couple of verses in, in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians has been abused by some translators, even some translations that aren't my personal favorite, is the phrase in there says, quit yourself like men. And there has been an erosion of that in, in some forms of Bible translation to think about what that may have meant in the first century, contrasted with what that might mean today, we have, to, we have to help the scripture out a little bit. We have to contextualize and, and undermine the actual words that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write and just help him out a little bit. In the first century, the context that Paul was writing, under Roman rule, Greek and Hellenistic culture, if you said, act like a man, it meant something very substantive. But today's culture, particularly in the technologically advanced modern Western culture, if you say act like a man, there are people that don't even understand what that means or what does that look like? Who is, the, who is the role model? Who is the example of that? Does that mean all I ever do is mansplain? Does that mean all I ever do is, is express this toxic masculinity, which means to, it means to be a force? I would argue that the Greek used in the underlying of this English phraseology, act like men, needs no help at all from translators to contextualize it. Because when we read act like men, we interpret that in the full, the full breadth of what the Bible talks about as masculinity. It's not unclear at all. But there's been an erosion in modern culture. An erosion that's deeply infiltrated much of modern Western Christianity. And when we read these phrases side by side in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, there is something jarring in the way that these are put together. Number one, act like men. And number two, all that you do, make sure it's done in love. Well, if on the one hand, manhood, or even just the word man or masculinity, has undergone some serious, serious redefinition and contamination, the word love, all the more so. All the more so. In fact, Entire swaths of modern culture, even Christian culture, has so commandeered the word love to mean anything other than masculine. In fact, I've had people say to me, Craig, sometimes the way you present yourself is a little too masculine. You should be more loving. Like there's a, there's a mutual exclusivity in that. Like Jesus or the apostolic examples of Peter and Paul and John and others do not demonstrate to us very clearly what this looks like in a very masculine form of love. See that all that you do be done in love. Now, usually, right, you guys understand this, you live in the real world. Usually, love is the remedy that's prescribed when someone is acting too forward too aggressively, too unflinchingly, right? It's like, in order to be loving, you have to know and posture yourself with deep levels of compromise. Love is too often defined by our corrupt culture and corrupt Christianity as soft, pliable, malleable, muted, dare I say it, feminized. And if you're not acting that way, Normally, the very easy and obvious charge that you will incur is you're not loving. Or maybe even worse, you're not like Jesus. Now again, the redefinition of the character and the person of Jesus in the Scripture has been one of the greatest scandals in modern Western Christianity. Maybe it started in the Renaissance era when the artists 
began to paint this Jesus as this very feminine form. Soft skin, blue eyes, long flowing, Fabio type hair. You guys have seen the images. Not the image of Jesus that we understand is very endemic to first century culture. When you swung a hammer in a carpenter's shop, you were a man's man. And more to that, on two occasions, Jesus storms the temple with a whip to turn over tables and drive out money changers, lenders, and traders. Not once, twice. We just taught this a couple of weeks ago at my home church in Rochester, New York. And I saw something in the text that I know I'd read before, but I'd never really dialed in on and focused on. It talked about how Jesus went to the temple. We're preaching through the gospel of John. He saw the outer courts being commandeered by traders and money changers. It says he went out and began to braid a whip. Now, I suddenly got this image, right, of this Jesus. Too often we read that story, and, and we don't mean to do this, but we kind of do this. We see Jesus walk into the, the outer courts, right? We see that happening, and we see that he's suddenly confronted with this image, and he grabs whatever is close by, and he goes on his violent rampage. But if you think through the story, what's actually happened is he's observed the situation. He's back down, walked away, sat down, and spent however long it might take to braid a whip. In a court of law, we call that premeditation. There was every intention of Jesus to march into that court, to flip over tables, to lash and swing and scourge this whip around to ensure that people understood that a passion for his father's house consumed him. A feminized Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. A feminized Jesus is not the Jesus of the cross. And it's not a Jesus that can save anybody. The only thing that Jesus has to offer, which a cowering multitudes of Christians and culture want from Jesus, is a Jesus that's palpable, is pliable, is malleable, he's manipulable, he's able to be conformed and, 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 and managed, and he's able to be tamed. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. In fact, one thing we know for sure, without any hesitation, is that whatever Jesus did in his earthly ministry, he did as the direct and clear expression of love. More than that, because Jesus is truly God incarnate, we know that whatever Jesus did in his earthly ministry is exactly what God would do if he came into our world and in our form. We know that for sure. What would God do? If he was in human form and he walked into the outer courts and he saw his, his, his house of prayer converted into a place of trade and commerce, he premeditates acts of aggression, acts of violence, acts maybe which other feminized people would call terrorism. This is the Jesus that heaven has sent to save us and model an example for us of masculinity. I hope so. Now, often we think about the malleable, manageable, tamed Jesus and the way in which masculinity has been redefined in our modern times to mean that you need to take your manhood, you need to season it with a sprinkling of love, and what comes out of that is a soft, dominated, not robust not strong. Now, those character traits 
We might call the softer character traits. Maybe the feminine character traits. You know, the New Testament explicitly says that the female of our human species is the weaker sex. It's almost like you you say that today and you just kind of pause and halt for a moment and wonder who's going to come down on you like a ton of bricks because you even dared to suggest that God has designed us differently. And the design that God has given us in male and female, after God's likeness, He creates them, is a design that is specific, intentional, and functional. We think about how often love has been redefined as being soft, as love is being defined as being muted and malleable. The thing is, we can be lovingly tender and soft and gentle, but you can also be hatefully tender Hatefully and spitefully soft, compromisingly gentle. This is not the profile of Jesus we meet in Scripture. You just don't encounter Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, whoever gives people a pass on their sin. Or whoever fails to call out authorities and threats wherever they may be because they need to be called out and held accountable. What about the instance where King Herod himself, a complete an utter autocrat, a tyrant if there ever was the personification of the word tyrant, Herod. And he wants an interview with Jesus. He wants to see him. He's heard about this miracle-working rabbi that's drawing thousands to come and see and hear him. He's He's a spectacle. And Herod says, get me an interview with this guy. And Herod's message has come to Jesus. I don't know what they thought. The text doesn't tell us, but you can imagine that they, that they really thought that Jesus is going to treat this as his, as his big moment, right? His, his coming of age, his rising to stardom because Herod wants to see him. And what does Jesus reply? Go and tell that fox. Go and tell him that I will perform cures and healings on this day and on the next. And on the third day, I will be perfected and glorified. I'm paraphrasing, but here's the, here's the thrust of what Jesus is saying. I bow down to no one. I compromise for no one. It doesn't matter what star power you might boast, the greatest tyrant of the land of Judea at the time, or even the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees or the, the lawyers, whoever it may be. Jesus never demonstrated this malleableness that often today is purported as really being love. We can also, as I said, demonstrate compromise and be gentle, and that's not love. And yet we can be loving and stern, loving and harsh, loving and combative. Now often people just pursue, perceive that to be oxymoronic. But when a nation sends its brightest and bravest into war to defend its freedoms against an invading force, it is considered loving When those men take up arms and fight to the bloody death against the invasion. I use that example because we've all seen it just recently in the last few weeks on our nightly news of the invasion of Ukraine. No one thinks to accuse those soldiers of lacking love because they went into a war with lethal weapons. No, in fact, it's considered to be the great personification of love. People love to... They love to celebrate war heroes and quote Jesus out of context, but they quote Jesus. No man hath greater love than this, than the one that lays down his life for his friend. Now, the love that's called for in our text here this morning is a love that's unmistakably manly. 
and strong. In fact, both of those words are literally used in our text, manly and strong. In case it's been too long, let me read it again so we can, we can relish in the way that love is described. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, this love that's called for is a very distinct and masculine love that leads, that is dependent, consistent, and reliable. We understand the way this love boils down, reduces to the domestic environment of the home. Husbands, fathers, leaders are called to embody the threefold office that Jesus exemplified for us in prophet and priest and king. In fact, the man of the house is being called by God to be a pastor, shepherd over the household. The Puritans used to love to, they used to love to say this. They used to love to say that every home ought to be a little church, spiritually thriving, physically and healthily thriving, dependable, functional, safety and health. Let's look at these three ministries, just in brief, these three offices of this masculine love that Paul calls us. Firstly, the prophet. The prophet, as God calls us all to be, to be in a, an embodiment of a prophetic calling. No, I don't mean any kind of charismania idiocy. Don't misunderstand me. But the way that a prophet is a word-based ministry, a word-based ministry. The prophet is called of God to speak on God's behalf to the people. Think Old Testament prophet like Jeremiah or, or Elijah or, or men like this. God gave them a message and they were to in no way meddle with the message or contaminate the message, but to deliver it faithfully. The prophet, the word-based ministry, having a message from God, he serves God primarily as a mouthpiece, as a leader who speaks truth. The prophet understands the greatest gift he can offer is to be a conduit for God's unalterable word. To know God deeply, intimately, to live close proximity with the Lord and his word, to serve out of this relationship. The anointing of the prophet, especially in the Old Testament, comes from God alone. Sometimes conferred through an elderly or a mentoring prophet, but not always. Many prophets of the Old Testament were given from God alone directly his anointing and his calling. The word-based ministry. Husbands, fathers, this is one area of your greatest service to your family to be a conduit of the scriptures of God, to teach it, to live it, to exemplify it as a prophet in the home, in the family. The second one, priest. Now, priest predominantly is a sacrifice-based ministry. In, in, in contrast to a prophet, priests are called not to speak on behalf of God to the people, but in reverse, to speak on behalf of the people to God. The priest mediates God's presence to the people. The priest goes into the holiest place with the sacrifice and the sin he seeks to atone for and holds it at his burden. The, prophet, the priest, rather, his job is to know the failures and the depth of sinfulness and weakness of the people and to make atonement before God. Now, we're not saying 
That when God calls us to be husbands and fathers, our role is to mediate Jesus to our wives and children. Not at all. Jesus needs no mediator. The Bible is clear. There is one mediator between God and man. That's the man, Jesus Christ. But our role as we flesh out this priestly calling is to to embody Jesus, that that Jesus-like example to our family so that when they encounter Jesus in their own heart, by faith, in the Scripture, it's not a foreign concept, but they say, that's what dad, that's what husband has been perpetually trying to live out. This is why Jesus says in Ephesians, the husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. To, to embody that and to exemplify that. In Ephesians 5, 25 and 27, I just read this or I quote it. Let me read it for you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What this means then, as husbands, fathers, as men, maybe you don't have a family, but you believe God is going to bring you a family, grant you that wonderful privilege at some time in the future, you need to meditate and settle these things in your heart right now. This means dealing with your wife in private. Dealing with the sins of your children in private. When their sins are needing to be dealt with. It means means fighting gossip. How many many men do I experience in my calling as a pastor? I've got to meet with men all the time. And they want to come to me and complain about their wife. It's a staggering, a staggering failure. Not that as a pastor, I'm not there to listen and and understand your trials with your wife. But if you haven't first spoken with her and dealt with this in the home, you have no right to be going outside the home for recourse at all. In fact, the very word husband comes from the ancient word which was gardener or keeper of livestock. In fact, some of you know the old King James still uses the word that way. It says, the husbandman shall be first partaker of the fruit. It means the gardener is the first one to to try and test the the new harvest. The husband. We are called of God to be gardeners and our garden is our home, our wife, our children. When a man comes to me, you've been married 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I did counseling recently for a couple that were in their late 70s and had been completely non-functional as a married couple for 50 years. When I sit down with a husband who shows me his garden, his family, his wife, his children, his domestic environment, and it is run over with chaos and, and weeds and, and mess, and it's completely, it's completely indistinguishable from just a forest. You know who I blame? I never, I've never blamed a garden for being full of weeds. The blame lies with the gardener. There's an old saying, What do you have to do to a garden to let it be overrun by pests and weeds? The answer is literally nothing. Nothing. This is part of the role that God calls us. Now, I'm not saying for your wife or your children. I'm not saying you can never go to your pastor for for help and counsel and prayer and support. I'm saying as a leader in the home, the buck stops with you. We have to embody this calling. We have to fight the good fight. We have to express this masculinity in a biblical and Jesus-like way. The last one, of course, prophet, priest is king. 
Of course, the kingly calling is a leadership-based ministry to lead on God's behalf the people that he's entrusted to you. Where the culture wants men to be tame, domesticated, predictable, and, and, and leashed. That's what the culture wants. The Bible commands men to be unmistakably leaders. But be fully aware, the king's anointing comes from the prophet. Comes from the prophet. This is the way in the Old Testament the kings would, be, would understand themselves to be next in line for the throne. Samuel the prophet would turn up and anoint you. Or another prophet, Elijah, whoever it may be, he, he confers this anointing upon you. That means the role of a king is not assumed until he's proven himself as a prophet. In fact, this order that I'm presenting these in this morning, we're almost about to close here, is very intentional. Prophet, priest, and king. We are called to lead, unmistakably lead, unflinchingly lead. Not to be dominated, not to be whipped and leashed and tamed and domesticated, but to lead. Our family should feel us as a force, a force for their defense, a force for their profit and good. Not for their harm or abuse, but a force for good, just like Jesus was. But the king's leadership comes and the respect that he garners from his family comes because he's already understood his role as the prophet in the home, to know God, to walk close with God, and the role of a priest, to bear the, the sins of the people, to feel acutely the pressure of the sins of husband, the husband feels for wife and for children. Without the prophet's anointing, the king becomes a tyrant, and he lords and domineers over his family without any compassion of the priestly anointing. Prophet priest and king, creates shepherd gardeners in the domestic environment and from there broadly into church and culture as men rise up and embody everything Jesus has called us to be. To let everything we do be done with love, but that love to be distinctly firm, strong and masculine without any shame or fear because this is what it looks like to be like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this chance this morning to spend a few moments together in fellowship, to enjoy some wonderful, some wonderful refreshments and some food. And most importantly, Lord God, to open up your scriptures, to hear your spirit speak to us through the very words of inspired text, to know, Lord God, that every word of scripture proves true. That every word of Scripture, it calls our obedience and conformity. That we are never masters of the Word, but we are perpetually students and slaves to the very commands of Scripture. We thank you, Father. You've not just given us the Bible. You've given us the perfect example in Jesus. I pray as we wrestle with these thoughts this morning, what it means in my family, in my home, in my workplace, in my calling, among my friends, my hobbies to embody this loving, masculine leadership, to know that it looks like Jesus in every sense, and yet to know it must unmistakably look like and be authentic to who you've called me to be. Help all of us, Lord God, in our very unique settings, in our very particular context to understand how your word speaks to us deliberately and powerfully this morning 
to live out the implications of what we've read and understood. You've called us to be strong, Lord God, to be firm, to, to be unflinching in the face of opposition, and to act like men, ensuring that all that we do be done in love. May this all abound to the glory of Christ and the health and the betterment of us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.